I had a, uh, <clears throat> a dream, and I wonder maybe if you can tell me what it means. All right? It goes like this. Uh, it happens in this room, and people are, are coming forward. They are coming down the aisles, but it's only women. And when they get to the front, um, there's music playing. But it's not normal worship response music. It's Thriller by Michael Jackson. <laughs> okay? And, and these women are dancing. <laughs> Carefully choreographed dance in this room, in this sacred space. <laughs> and then, here, something unspeakable happens where I'm standing. Um, lady does the splits right here on stage. And I can't wake up. It's like it's real. It's like it happened here yesterday or something. So, uh, I'm, not sure. I'm not sure what that means. We may need to cleanse the temple this morning. <laughs> or at least get some new leadership who shepherd their people. Anyway, probably we should just pray and forget about it. So, if you missed Women's Day, you missed something astonishing. I imagine this will go viral soon, though, because I did see this last night. So, keep, keep watching. It will be posted soon. Let's pray. Father, in your mercy, now we, again, we really need to encounter you. It takes us less than the time we awake to this time for us to steer off course, to forget, to be enticed. And oh, how we need the loving, kind guidance of your spirit and your word. So we pray that you'd give us extraordinarily attentive hearts and minds and uh, happily obedient hearts in response to what you are about to show us in your word. And again, may my words line up with your words for your great purposes for us all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me, let me start with a riddle. Okay? When is a woman, speaking of women this morning, when is a woman who is normally right-handed, left-handed? Okay? Think about that with me. When is a woman who is normally right-handed, left-handed? And the answer is, when she gets engaged. Okay? She will wave left-handed. She'll shake hands left-handed. She, uh, she eats and drinks left-handed. She probably signs checks left-handed. Anything with her left hand. It typically, uh, it's not because she's some kind of... Um, has some kind of diamond fetish. Okay. It's, 
it's because she is thrilled to be the beloved. Someone has pledged to her at a great and unaffordable price (laughs) that he will love her and cherish her in sickness and in health until death us do part. But what will that what will that be like in a year or a decade? After the kids come and, and when sickness comes, will she still be left handed? You know, the reality of it is those times they come and they come often, they come in waves. Relentlessly, it seems. And either we can fight to protect and then recover the wonder of being the beloved. To become left-handed once again. Or we can just let it shrivel up and die. And so too, I think it is, with Christ. After a time when we've been through a lot of hardship, we can lose the wonder of what it means to be the beloved. And so today, what I would like to do is to help us begin the fight to recover the wonder, the joy of being left-handed in our relationship with Christ. And it's so important to us for so many reasons. Um, This is, I think, where your joy lies. It is in the recovery of this great love. I think it is where your compassion is fueled. This is the year at North Wyke of sharing Christ boldly. Why would you do that? Why, why run that risk? Why put forth that effort? It makes absolutely no sense if the wonder of the love of Christ has been compromised for you. If it's atrophied. But it makes all the sense in the world if you're left-handed. So one of the things that I got to do on my sabbatical and that I purposed to do was to think and read more deeply about Christ. Um, And this morning, I'd like for you to just join me in kind of reading and thinking together about one of my favorite descriptions of Christ from the book of Revelation in the very first chapter, in the very first verses. So if you'll open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 1, that's where we'll be this morning. Revelation is one of those um, really unique pieces of literature in the Bible. 
Um, it's a poem, and it's a letter, and it's an apocalyptic vision of the heavens and of the future. It is an extraordinary thing, but it is, at some level, a letter that is written to seven churches, and their names uh, are spilled out in uh, chapters 2 and 3. Five of those churches are struggling. They are struggling, um, if you were to look, they're struggling with great suffering. From Revelation chapter 2, this is from the church in Ephesus, it's one of those seven churches. Um, it says, to that church, the angel says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. weary. They were suffering persecution and hardship. They were also struggling against sin. Just in the next couple of verses, he says, But this I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. They had ceased to be left-handed, you see. These churches may have had a special connection to John, who is writing this letter. Maybe they were churches that he pastored. But when you read the book of Revelation, if there's a favorite number in Revelation, it's probably seven. Uh, I'm told that it, that it occurs like 50 sometimes. I didn't count. I was just told that. And it often is symbolic in its meaning. It, it, it's a symbol of fullness or completion. And so when it writes to the seven churches, not the six churches or the eight churches, you get a sense that it's written to these seven real historical churches named by name in the next couple of chapters, but it's bigger than that, that it's written to all churches. As history has unfolded throughout history, even to this day, even, even our church, so what we want to do this morning, all we're going to do is try to walk through the first eight verses um, together, which is really the introduction to this letter, because it does, as I mentioned to you, contain a description of Christ that I just, I just love. So we start in verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because time is near. So this revelation, this uncovering of the, of the word of God is from Jesus. It comes from Jesus. And if you read the book of Revelation, you know it's also largely about Jesus. He's central to this vision that was given to John that's about to unfold in this book. And it comes from the Father through Christ to the servants of Christ. Really, the book of Revelation makes no sense to anyone who's not a servant of Jesus Christ. That's who it's for. That's who gains hope from this book. And he says that the things in this book are soon to take place. In fact, in just 
the first three verses, he says it twice. He says that um, it must soon take place and the time is near. The hope in this book is, is a ready hope. It's a near hope. It's an impending hope that breaks through from time to time in the history of God's people. And it's at the ready to break through ultimately and finally one day. That day's near, he says. The revelation comes by an angel, this great, awesome messenger of God. This is no trivial message. Angels do not bear shopping lists. Okay? They bring great, historic, pivotal, life-changing messages to the people of God. An angel bears this message. And it is the very word of God, the very testimony of Jesus himself. And John is an eyewitness of what this angel bore to him. He wants us to grasp the significance of it. The language is freighted with it. This, what we're about to read, is important. It really matters. And he is going to urge us to trust in it and hope in it with all our heart. He says, if you do, in those closing phrases, he says, you will be blessed if you'll hear it and take to heart what is written in it. See, there are places that God loves to bless. There are places God promises to bless. And then there are places he absolutely refuses to bless. As a matter of fact, he promises to curse you if you go to those places. You want to make sure that you run to the former and you flee like your life depends on it from the latter. And so today, in even these, just these first handful of verses we're going to look at, the blessing of God on your life is at stake by how you respond to the truth of God that's about to be unfolded for you. In verse 4, he begins his formal letter to the churches. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John is writing. He doesn't give us any more description of himself than that. He has historically been associated with the fellow who wrote the Gospel of John, and the first, second, and third John. He is writing to those seven churches, to all churches this morning, to our church. This is for us this morning. And he wants you to know that he's not writing on his own. This is not, when he says, grace and peace to the churches. This is not the first century of equivalent of, hi, y'all. Okay. He doesn't want you to think that. He wants you to realize that this is grace and this is peace 
from the triune God, from the Trinity. He says, it's from God the Father who is and who was and who is to come. That is to say, the Father who has been and will be sovereign throughout all of history. There was never a time, and there never will be a time, when He was not and when He ruled not. He is, and He was, and He is to come. He is, and He was, and He will always reign. And the blessing of grace and peace, it comes also from seven spirits before God's throne. Now, um, many people think this can refer to the seven angels associated with the churches. That may well be. Um, most commentators favor that this is actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, there's similar language used in the Old Testament by the prophet Zechariah to describe the Spirit of God. And so here... There's a good possibility that it's a reference from the Spirit. And again, that sevenfold indicating perhaps the fullness of said Spirit. But it all moves from the Father to the Spirit and ultimately to the Son. That's John's focus. You've picked up on it already in just a few verses. This is from the Son. This is about the Son. And the Son, Jesus Christ, is three things, he says. He says he is a faithful witness. How faithful a witness? He is a witness who has withstood every single temptation. Hebrews says it this way, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He's the faithful witness. How faithful witness? He's a faithful witness unto death. Even death would not deter the son from carrying out the will of his beloved father. You pick up on this in John's other writings in the gospel. In John chapter 5, he says, Jesus says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus is faithful to the bidding of his Father. In John 18, Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus was faithful unto death. That cup is the cup of suffering. It's the cup of the cross. Jesus is the faithful witness. The next thing that John says is that he is also the firstborn from the dead. He's victorious over death by his resurrection. And he's the first of many who will follow. His resurrection is what makes our resurrection certain. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. And then John says, he's the ruler 
over the kings of the earth, over the greatest of enemies. He is, as John would say later in his revelation, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In chapter 17, it says they'll make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. That is his title. First century, uh, about the time of these churches uh, receiving this letter, emperor worship was beginning to crop up more and more in different pockets of the Roman Empire, where the people of the, the Roman Empire were required to worship their emperor, to declare he is worthy in a worshipful declaration. And in the face of that, John is saying, there is one who rules over all emperors, who rules over all kings. Christ is greater. He alone is worthy, John is saying. Now, if you skip for just a second, just a verse out of our text this morning into verse 9, you see where John is writing this from. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So he is in a place of suffering and perseverance. He says, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he received this revelation when he was in exile on a prison island because of his faith. If you go to the island of Patmos today, you can for a small fee, take a tour and go to the cave where John wrote the book of Revelation. At least that's what the tour guides will tell you. But he actually was writing from a place of suffering, a place of where he had to persevere, where he had been exiled because of his faith. And as, as John thinks and reflects on Christ as faithful witness and firstborn from the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth, he is moved in the next verses, in spite of his suffering, to worship. Back in verse 5. This is his worship. He says, to him who loves us. And this is, this is the part. Read it carefully because this stuff, this will make you left-handed right here. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. John is overcome with worship just at the description of Christ in his death and his resurrection and his reign. And it's interesting to me where he starts. He thinks about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the lordship of Christ over all kings on all the earth. And where he starts his worship is with love. He says, oh, I'm overcome that this Christ loves the likes of us.
See, when John reflects on the death, the resurrection, and the lordship of Christ, the first thing that pops into his mind is how stunning it is that he would love us so. And he's driven to worship. I ran across a, a fascinating account of author and speaker Brennan Manning's derivation of his name, Brennan. Um, when he was growing up, his best friend was named Ray. And he and Ray uh, did everything together. They even bought a car together when they were teenagers. Uh, they double dated together. They went to school together. Ultimately, they enlisted in the armed forces together. They went to boot camp together. And ultimately, they would fight on the front lines in battle together. He tells this story one night while he's sitting in a foxhole. Brennan was reminiscing about the old days in Brooklyn while Ray listened and ate a chocolate bar. Suddenly, a live grenade fell into their foxhole. Ray looked at Brennan. He smiled. He dropped his chocolate bar and threw himself on that live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but Brennan's life was spared. And when Brennan became a priest... He was instructed to take the name of a saint. And so he thought of his friend, Ray Brennan. And so he took on the name Brennan. Years later, he went to visit Ray's mother in Brooklyn. And they sat up late one night having tea. And Brennan asked her, Do you think Ray loved me? And Mrs. Brennan got up off of that couch shook her finger in front of Brennan's face and shouted at him, What more could he have done for you? And Brennan said at that moment, he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus, wondering, Does he really love me? And Jesus' mother Mary jumps up and points at him and says, what more could he have done for you? See, when John thinks of the faithful witness of Christ unto death, when he thinks of his lifeblood shed on the cross, he is awash with the overwhelming, undeserved honor of being the beloved. And John is totally, unashamedly left-handed once again. Now, I am aware, very aware, um, that there is a legitimate concern these days that the love of God wrongly proclaimed um, can make the entire gospel message have kind of an all-about-me feel. Um, and I'm very aware of that and recognize the legitimacy of that, that concern, but I'm also aware that as a result of that, sometimes there is an unfortunate and undue hesitation about gladly and freely proclaiming the lavish, rich love of God. 
Author and theologian D.A. Carson writes about this in his, in his helpful book um, about the love of God, the difficult doctrine of the love of God. He says, when I've preached or lectured in Reformed circles, I've often been asked the question, do you feel free to tell unbelievers that God loves them? He says, it's obvious that I have no hesitation in answering this question from young Reformed preachers affirmatively. Of course, I tell the unconverted that God loves them. I am saying that provided there is an honest commitment to preaching the whole counsel of God, preachers in the Reformed tradition should not hesitate for an instant to declare the love of God for a lost world, for lost individuals. He says the Bible's way of speaking about the love of God are comprehensive enough not only to permit this, but to mandate it. So when we proclaim the love of God rightly, when it flows out of the cross, there is no more God-glorifying, God-exalting story to tell than to tell the story that this God loves you. That this Christ who died and rose and now rules loves you. I am not as concerned that we protect the glory of God from an unseemly presentation about the love of God as I am that our zeal for the glory of God should somehow diminish the love of God and give us pause when we ought to be wildly, crazily proclaiming it. You should be really, really careful in getting your theology right but when your theology's right, it, it ought not give you pause about lavishly sharing and declaring the love of God. If you're thinking right about all this, you'll be thinking like John. It's going to make you left-handed, and you aren't going to help but do everything to display it to everyone that you meet. See, don't miss the wonder of the love of Christ for you and your neighbors. It is a stunning thing. Because out of his love, John tells us, flows freedom from our sins by his blood. There's a hymn writer, Alexander Means. He put it this way. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? Which caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. What wondrous love is this? See, out of the love of Christ, by his own blood shed for us, in our place, we are freed from our sins. Hebrews, Hebrews puts it this way. It says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that led to death so that we may serve the living God? Your conscience is cleansed by the love of Christ expressed in the death of Christ, the blood of Christ shed for you. You are free 
from the guilt of your sin. Peter will talk about the same idea this way. He says, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you are redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. By his blood, you are set free from your old way of life. You really don't have to continue to live that way. You don't have to keep on sinning that way anymore. Out of his great love for you. Demonstrated, Paul says, in that he died for you while you were still a sinner. He has set you free. There is a liberating reality here. You must come to grips with this. You are free. You no longer have to bear that shame. You no longer have to live that life. You are free by the loving sacrifice of the blood of Christ on the cross for you. And if you are here today and you are not yet in this kingdom that we are speaking about, you don't yet know the King Jesus in this way, you need to know you can be free. You don't have to leave this room today and bear your sin another step. You can transfer your trust to the one who loved you enough to die in your place on that cross, bearing the penalty for your sins so that you could be free. And at the end of the service today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that so that you don't have to walk out of this room bearing your sin another day, another step. This great, loving, freeing sacrifice towards us is towards an amazing end, he says. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us, he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God. He made us to be a kingdom. We are citizens in a new kingdom. We get to be under the loving, sovereign rule of God, and we together comprise his church in that kingdom. We are citizens of a new king. And the expectation as citizens is that we will live happily under his rule. We will gladly obey our new king. That's what good citizens do. See, out of love, Christ died for us to make us good citizens in his kingdom and to live in glad obedience to his rule. Does that describe you? Are you living in glad harmony with the purpose of the death of Christ for you, that you would be a good citizen in his kingdom? So you cannot cling to sin 
and honor the death of Christ on your behalf. He died for you to set you free and make you a citizen in His kingdom. He died for you to live happily under the rule of God. Does that describe you? You know, there's a, there's a guy, I ran across his description of this. His name is uh, Matt Woodley. And he writes about uh, going to watch his 18-year-old son participate in what uh, is described as a real X-ball paintball tournament. This is highly competitive paintball. They can shoot out of these guns 13 paintballs a second. This is not gotcha. This is, this is scary paintball, okay? 13 paintballs a second. They're split up into teams of, uh, I believe it's five opponents on a team, and it's absolute chaos. They're, you know, they're hiding behind debris and undergrowth and moving back and forth, and their coaches, the coach of your team, is yelling out instructions to you. He is siding the enemy and giving you instructions. Well, the chaotic part... Matt says, and he was really troubled by this when he first went and saw it, is that while the coach is yelling instructions to you about what you're supposed to do, the fans of the other team are yelling false instructions. And uh, he was really troubled by this. He talked to his son about it. He said, oh, yeah, Dad, that's just part of the deal. It's called counter-coaching. They're trying to distract our players with false information. It's part of the game, Dad. He says, we have to deal with it all the time. It just means we have to focus on our coach and block out all the other distractions. So there is a king, your king, who is giving you directives amidst, amidst a, a, a chaotic flow of voices every day who are counter-coaching you. As citizens of the kingdom, that means we listen and we obey one voice, that voice, the voice of our king. Amid all the chaos of your week, your king is speaking to you. Are you heeding his voice well? Christ freed you to do that, to be in the kingdom in that way. But it also says there, that he made us um, a kingdom and priests. Now that is a little more hard to sort out. What does that mean? Do we all get black shirts and collars? What, what does this look like? What does it mean that I'm a priest? It's a little weird. Never really thought about myself that way. Um, a priest, he tells us in the very next expression, we're a priest to serve our, his God and Father, our, our, our God and Father. We are priests to serve God. Um, a priest, though, is a special kind of servant. He is a mediator of sorts. He represents the people before God, and he represents God to the people. That's what a priest does. <clears throat> Eugene Peterson says a priest is like a bridge between the people and God. What does it mean then for you to be a priest where you work? What does it mean for you to be a priest of the love of God where you live? It means 
You need to represent the people before God by your intercession. A priest prays for, he intercedes for the people in his care. He stands before God and prays for them on their behalf. To be a faithful priest, you need to bring your people to God by your prayers. You need to be praying for the people that you work with, praying for the people that you go to school with, praying for the people that you live next to. That's what it means for you to be a priest. But it also means you bring God to the people by your words and by your actions. You're to speak of Him to them, to teach them about Him. That can be as simple as telling your story or maybe leading a Bible study at work or in the neighborhood. Or maybe giving a thoughtful, provocative gift this Christmas season that will tell them about Him. See, there's a priest in the hood and it's you. You have been placed in your neighborhood as a priest Christ died to put you there in that role. What does it mean for you to live and work as a priest? And all of this, it says, to the glory and fame and exaltation of Jesus, who alone is worthy. In the last couple of verses of our text, he says, look, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is coming back, Jesus is, and everyone will see him, especially those who have rejected him. And all the nations will mourn at his return. This is yet another motivation to take the gospel to all the nations because when he comes back, he is coming as judge over all the nations and all the peoples. And then he closes this section with that book-ending recitation of the threefold sovereignty of God, the one who is one who was and the one who is yet to come. He rules from A to Z, from the beginning of history to the end, and that includes this day. And John says, rest in that hope. Trust in that hope. Share that hope. Priest that hope. Maybe for the first time today, John says, Believe that. See, John is gripped right out of the blocks in his revelation by the love of Christ for the likes of us. John is decidedly left-handed. How about you? Have you ever been gripped by the love of God like that? Have you ever embraced and welcomed the love of Christ? into your life. For those of you who have done that, who have embraced the love of Christ, 
Understand that He has redeemed you in order to make you a kingdom and a priest. What kind of priest are you? Lord knows these days we need priests with great reputations representing Christ. Where you live and work. But you know, you don't have to leave this room bearing your own sin. The love of God for you is such that he has brought you through a path that is unbelievable to this room this morning so that you could hear the offer of freedom from your sin by a God who loves you and a Christ who died for you. And in order to embrace that love, all you have to do is acknowledge your great need that you have sinned terribly against this God who loves you so. And that you trust that Christ on the cross has paid the penalty of that for you so you can be free. I'd like to lead you in a time of closing prayer for that right now. Let's bow together. Father, have mercy upon us. Be kind to us and lead us to a place of repentance this morning. For those who are here, who have never embraced your love for them, who have resisted it and rejected it and fled it, I pray this morning that you would, that you would humble them by it, that you would hear their prayer right now as they acknowledge that they have sinned greatly against you and they need this freedom that Christ has brought them by virtue of his own blood shed on the cross, his life poured out for their sins. Lord, have mercy upon them. May they walk from this room all of their days into freedom of the love of God demonstrated on the cross in Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, if you are uh, sensing God prompting you about these matters in important ways, um, I'm going to ask, once we start singing, that our elders and some of our women's ministry leaders just come down and fill the front rows here. And if you would like someone to pray with you, if you'll just make your way down here to one of them, they would love to pray with you for a moment. You don't have to say much. You can just say, would you pray for me? And, and they'll pray for you. But if you want to tell them a little more about how specifically they can pray for you, uh, God says it's a good thing to have people in prayer for you. Especially, I think, when you are on the cusp of responding to God in important ways uh, in response to his word. So let me encourage you to do that as the worship team leads us in this closing time of worship. Would you stand? If our leaders will move to that place in the front rows, we welcome you for prayer.